Hello and welcome to episode one of Meenal's World. Thank you to everybody who's shown all your support through episode zero. A big, big thank you for everyone who's messaged me, emailed me, even called me actually. And I'm, I'm really grateful for all the love that's been pouring and, uh, you know, releasing releasing the episode, uh, the very first episode, which is episode zero, was very exciting moment for me when I released my very first episode with Desi Outsiders I was more worried about the numbers and you know if this would be popular but this this time around it was very a very different sort of vibe and a very different feeling I, I really just was so happy to be back with my microphone and feeling that same energy again so thank you to everybody who showed all the love and support and and thank you for for coming back to the next episode as well so my first guest on the show my first ever guest on the show is a lovely lady Ravine Sethi who was someone I met a few months ago working with with another project that I'll tell you more about in the next few weeks I'm not allowed to say much about it now but I, I heard about her story and I said to myself, I really need to get her on the show and speak to her. She's shown so much strength over the last few years with her battle with, with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, she was she talks about how she was diagnosed with it in her early 20s. And she talks about how this was a probably, well, it was one of the most difficult times of her life. And she likes to describe herself as a cancer thriver. But to me, Ravine is, is much more than that. She is my superhero. And, you know, speaking to Ravine shifted my, my own mentality as a doctor working in the NHS because for the, the first time I wasn't talking to a patient in a room. I was speaking to a friend and you know, a whole part of my brain sort of lit up during this conversation. And even when I listen back to it, I'm still learning more about myself as a doctor and how I can actually improve just even as a person. And you'll hear more about why in this episode. You know, you talk, we'll talk about how we deal with bad news in, in our community and how to deal with our parents going through this suffering and grief. And the biggest takeaway from me in this episode was that life shouldn't be seen as a timeline and that's something that's imposed on us from a very young age and as Ravine mentions life can take an unexpected turn any day for anybody and having that disruption in your timeline doesn't mean it's end of the world it's it's okay you know I could actually go on a whole whole episode just talking about how amazing Ravine is but I'll I'll stop here and I'll let you listen to the lovely lady herself so without further ado, let's jump right into the show. So welcome to the show, Ravine. It's really lovely to have you Thank here you today with much. me, actually. And it's nice to have a guest face to face rather than over Skype. So thank you for coming all the way and no trekking <laughs> the other side of London. Thank you very much. <laughs> so for our guests who are listening, wherever they are, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, so my name is Ravine Setti. I'm 25 years old. Um, I'm a consultant, a financial consultant. So I'm trained to become a financial advisor. So I'm just going through that um, transition and doing exams for it, really. Ravine, from what I, from for our guests, actually, you're a cancer survivor. Mm. I don't know if the word survivor is something you like to use. Cancer thriver. Survivor, great. That's yeah, <laughs> so I think it's quite insensitive to those that haven't that haven't survived through yeah. cancer because yeah. it's not their fault yeah because I actually read something a few days ago about terms that people use for patients mm. and people are not some some patients some 
patients who've gone through cancer, whether it's been a very end stage part or very early stages of cancer, they're not very happy using specific terms. So what 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 are the terms that get get to you? I don't know if they're actually terms, but cancer survivor is one of them. Mm-hmm. I say thriver because I feel like you just thrive over, yeah. thrive off bad situations mm-hmm. and just get through it that's my take on it but I think it's more phrases that people say whilst you're going through cancer yeah so it's like oh don't worry your hair will grow back it's Mm. temporary or oh um people die from cancer it's just the fact that people don't really think before they speak Mm. and they don't understand that my situation is very different to getting your hair cut or like losing hair like there's a lot more to it that Mm. people just don't understand yeah so it's Hodgkin's lymphoma um stage four so I got diagnosed back in March 2018 Mm -hmm. and I was in remission after that and then I got re-diagnosed again and relapsed in August this year so Ravine from from what I know that you've been a big advocate actually for we can say people who've gone through something similar to what you have and um the reason I got you on the show today is because from what I've read and from what I've seen you you seem to be fighting for a a lot of things actually no no, you're not fighting but trying to bring up new conversations and Mm -hmm. topics that we don't really have in our in our community and obviously I'm sure like through different stages of your journey there were new things that came up and new things that you thought about okay you know this is something that you should be spoken about. Yeah, yeah to be spoken about within our generation, the future, and even the generations behind us as well. So just to like start from the very beginning, you found that you had this rash on your leg, legs, uh, and then you went to the, the general practitioner. So yeah. just for people who are maybe not in the UK, it's like your family doctor, yeah. more or less. Like yeah, your local, local, yeah, your yeah. local doctor, that's just your go-to like starting point. So I went to my doctor and he told me that I had scabies. Um, which was quite irritating Um, and I was given medication for that and that didn't work and then went back a month later said it wasn't working he said just give it some more time just 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 to go back uh, I mean because I'm I'm a doctor as well yeah (laughs) in case I haven't made it obvious (laughs) (laughs) so I work in the NHS and Mm -hmm. the system is not great Mm -hmm. it's not great for patients it's not great for doctors because I've worked in a setting where I've had I've had to sort of see patients in clinic, similar to your when you went, for example, mm-hmm. with your first initial yeah. symptom. Mm-hmm. But then I've also seen patients in the oncology ward because I worked there for yeah. four months. Yeah. So I've seen both sides. Mm-hmm. And in both situations, we are pressured a lot that you have to sort of, you have to just get through as many patients as you can because we have to hit a deadline. And so when the GP saw you at the, the very beginning, what do you, how do you feel they were sort of reacting to how, how you felt? Like when you went back and said, this is not helping, this is not improving. Was there any sort of like empathy? Like, okay, we need to extend this investigation further or were they just like, okay, look, I've just got another list of 20 patients to see today. We need to hurry up. Yeah. So it definitely felt like they were just trying to rush. There yeah. was quite a lack of understanding because with the rash, it kept me up all night mm. I was comfortable, uncomfortable. I couldn't sit. Um, I'd be falling asleep on the train. Like it did play a big part in my life. It did disrupt my life completely. Mm-hmm. Hence, I went there in the first place. And I think, as patients, as people, we trust doctors to know everything. Yeah. Which I I've, I've learned to understand that that's not probably the best because they still make mistakes. But I did feel like there was a lack of understanding or time and empathy mm-hmm. with the situation yeah. which obviously led to my yeah. misdiagnosis on two occasions yeah yeah so when you when you 
were misdiagnosed and then you decided to go to a private mm-hmm. um, private doctor. So what was the time span between when you went to your GP to when you went to a private doctor? How, how long was that? So I went to my doctor initially in December, then went back in January, a okay. month after. And then because that didn't work, I was told, like, we need to go privately. Thank God I have private insurance. And then I went in February. And from then on, it went very quickly. Everything happened very quickly. So your diagnosis and your treatment was all done in the private sector? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. So everything was done privately from there? Yeah, even though it's the same regime, everything's the same. I think as a patient, you're going through this period where you just want to find out what's happening. Mm -hmm. So the um, diagnosis happened very quickly, Mm -hmm. day after the other scans, everything. Mm -hmm. So that helped. I think that's the only issue with the NHS. I was put through emergency through the NHS, which is two weeks. But I feel like you just want to know two weeks is not quick enough. Yeah. yeah. So I think private helped with that. Um, There's not a huge difference with private and NHS from what I know. But I think from initial diagnosis, that's probably the most important and was the most important for my family. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Ravine, actually, I remember just even a few weeks ago, we had a patient come into A and uh, they were were unwell and they were going through, they had some CT scans done and they suspected a malignancy. Um, But the only way to obviously confirm it is through biopsy. And I asked them, so when is your biopsy? And they said six weeks. And I was like, wow, so you have to wait six weeks just to get the biopsy yeah. then to process the results. Is that takes, weeks, yeah. yeah. So they just have to wait. And it's 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 really difficult to see that as a doctor because I'm just sat there, like, I can't do anything for you, yeah. you know? Like, if I could do the biopsy myself, I, I would, but yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm just stuck. So I... I think I think a lot of doctors feel the way I do, to be honest, Ravine. I, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have ever thought that. I, I thought think, it's just a process that you guys just used to no 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 I, I i think a lot of us work like machines because yeah. we come in at nine o'clock we have to finish by five and we have to see a certain number of patients and that's it but you know like hand on heart ravine i really do think that and I'm, i've been lucky to be surrounded by these kind of doctors who've actually inspired me to become better mm. they would go the extra mile mm-hmm. so for example if a patient came in who was really struggling we would try and call the the oncology doctor and see okay can we expedite the the biopsy try get it done quicker because the patient's like suffering yeah and i don't know if you've heard heard enough of this i, I mean there are some people in who you close family friends and stuff who are doctors mm. I don't know if they've told you this but you know we even we feel very stuck in this system yeah. and unfortunately there's there's not much that we can do because there are people who work above us people who work above them and we're we're just at the bottom of the we're ladder just really. fr- following protocol yeah, aren't you? this is all about protocol mm. and stuff so I'm actually glad that you managed to to get this private um, health insurance was that done through your company or um no my family have private insurance okay um so then after that then I realized the importance of private insurance mm. and although we have the NHS which I respect so much because with private if something was to happen, they don't have A&E, they don't have the same kind yeah. of facilities. Okay, fine, fine. So I still, so when I did get infections, I was still liable under the NHS. Yeah, NHS. Okay, so sorry. I'd still go to my local hospital. Yeah. So it's just very much like in the middle and, mm-hmm. and private insurance is important in certain aspects but sometimes NHS is better because there's more staff around, mm-hmm. they're more, they're seeing more patients yeah. and it's more or less the same like, but I think initial diagnosis, that's where I yeah. found like it was a problem yeah. under the NHS. Yeah. And the waiting time as well. Mm. I'd be given an appointment for a scan 
or to see the doctor. And that goes because doctors don't see you when they see yeah, you. Yeah. So it goes way over time. But I feel like with private, she's more punctual. Mm. And it's a smoother process, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And the, but the issue with private is it's a business. Mm. It is a business. And I've spoken to nurses and stuff and I'm very open with them. And <laughs> one nurse actually told me how she prefers the NHS because of the business aspect okay, of fine. private. Um, and it is all about money yeah, in the yeah, private sector. Yeah. I think it's uh, very fortunate that you had mm, this private insurance. Yeah. Um, I remember just last week, there was a patient who was diagnosed with lung cancer August this summer, mm. and he didn't get his appointment with his onco- his oncologist. So the first meeting with his oncologist was last week. What? And he had to come into A&E because he was um, struggling to to breathe he just yeah. felt very weak you know like yeah. just the general uh symptoms of the malignancy sort of developing mm. and he was i think he was about 75 80 years old and poor man he was just out on the, on his wheelchair and he was like they're just gonna leave me here to die and that's when that's so shocking and that's when it hit me yeah that's when i was because the thing is like you look at these people and you think this could be my father this could be my mother yeah. this could be anybody sitting here yeah and we have allowed the NHS has allowed them to feel this way, yeah. And I, and it's not someone you can't point this to someone, yeah. It's not anybody's fault, mm. but you know, like even with Brexit and everything coming up, yeah. Everyone is like, oh, NHS, NHS, and a part of me is like, what are we even proud of? Um, mm. You know, because in terms of patient satisfaction, I don't really see much of it, to be honest. But isn't um, it hard because you're treating basically the whole nation? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're still doing something towards it. Like, I do respect the NHS yeah, a lot. But yeah. with that patient in particular, that is terrible. Yeah. Like, I got diagnosed in August, was able to freeze my eggs in September. And then I'm, I've am i got a PET scan tomorrow. So yeah. I'll, it'll check if I'm in remission. So, yeah. like, so much has happened. It's very, like, go, 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 go. Yeah. yeah. And But so much has happened since the end of all... No, I got diagnosed at the beginning of September. So I've done so much since then. Mm-hmm. And that's where the difference is. Yeah. So, so when you were diagnosed, Ravine, how did they break the news to you? Were you with family or were you by yourself? Or Yeah, so the initial time. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so I was with my family. My family would always come to all the appointments. But before that, when I went to the dermatologist who checked my skin and then checked for my enlarged lymph nodes, she kind of hinted that it could be cancer. Mm. Um, I'd never heard about the cancer before, didn't know It was very common with um, younger people my age. Mm. Um, but then I started researching, so did my sister. We started researching all over Google and it, all the symptoms made sense. Mm-hmm. They all came together. Mm-hmm. So when it came to being diagnosed officially, I weirdly wasn't shocked. It was more like relieved, like now I know what's causing mm-hmm. this pain. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get rid of the pain yeah. on my legs and that was my focus. Yeah. But I didn't know how life-changing it would be and yeah. I'm slowly learning that. I'm still learning so much even now. Mm-hmm. I've been through cancer before, but there's so many unknowns, so much coming up, but mm-hmm. I'm still like, just because I've done it before mm-hmm. doesn't mean I can do it again. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me, when I got diagnosed by my GP the second time round, mm-hmm. it was really good because I had gone through cancer before. They knew to put me through and make it an urgent referral. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as bad the second time and I've changed my GP since. Yeah. Um, but the GP said, I was like crying. I was really low when I found out. And he was like, it's fine. Like you've been through it before you can do it again. 
And I was so shocked. I didn't know what to say. I think even my mum was like, what? Yeah, that's very insensitive. It's very insensitive. Yeah. And it's a whole different ballgame when it comes back again. Mm -hmm. The chemo is more intense. I have to go through a stem cell transplant. There's just so much involved mentally, physically. How old were you the second time? Well, 24. 24. So that was just last year then, right? Yeah, well, I got diagnosed. Oh, the first time I got diagnosed. 23. 23 the first time. Yeah, and now, yeah, two years later. Two years later. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when we're kids, our parents tell us like, okay, this is how you have to behave when you're in school. This is how you have to behave in front of older people. This is how you should study. But no one's ever said, actually, if you get bad news, this is how you should deal with it. Mm. And I think... Even even as a kid myself, there were a lot of times in our family that bad news came around. I remember when my grandparents passed away, we were in Gibraltar. They, my family were obviously in India. Yeah. And I just remember coming from school one day and I was like telling my mom, okay, like, what, what's wrong? You don't look. And she just was very clear, like, your granddad has passed away, full stop. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, no one spoke about it after that. And as a child, for me, that was quite shocking because I was very close to him. I hadn't yeah. seen him for about three years. Mm-hmm. And to know that he's not going to be there anymore was... Like, I just didn't know how to take it in. And we we were never told, like, okay, in a difficult situation, because this isn't just a... This this wasn't just, okay, this is bad news for you. Now you have a timeline. Mm. You have to think, okay, how do we get through this as a family mm. in the next few months, in the next six months, and in the next even two years? Mm. And how, how can we actually work together? Yeah. So how did your family react in that way? Because... You know, getting diagnosed with cancer isn't just, okay, we just get treated, chemotherapy, full stop. Mm. There's so much behind that. And were your family able to sort of understand that and create that supportive environment for you? Yeah, so a lot of people, a lot of families do break over bad news. And that's quite common, which I've heard. But I've got such a supportive family, like my immediate family. I've got an older sister who kind of takes the reins and... Like, everyone knows what to do. Like, my mum isn't allowed to be emotional in front of me because that will impact me. Mm. But I think my sister's really the one that helps everyone, like, just manage it better. So she's able to talk to me about my emotions. Mm. And my dad, she talks to everyone else about their emotions, but she keeps it quite separate, which is good. But I think... We're just a very, very close family, so it helps a lot. Did this bring you closer? Or were you always this close? I think we were always this close, but it's obviously, I don't know, like, it's shown us to be a lot more stronger mm. and a unit because I'd go to my mum for something if I wanted to talk about how I feel or my sister. But with my dad, I know he's handled everything, like the financial side yeah. and, like, my sister would do the appointments. Mm. My mum would spend, my mum would spend time with me at home like just make sure I'm comfortable and like, everyone has a different part to play yeah but they're all like very important it's like, and a, like a working machine together everyone's got different we're all, yeah we're all working and they're very supportive I think one of the biggest things that I felt was so when I first got diagnosed I went through panic attacks anxiety attacks for the first time ever and I really saw my sister and my mum really take their time with me to understand how I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. to make me feel better. We'd go for drives and then long term I decided to go to gym for it. So with that, it helped. And because they saw that I was physically ill, they understood that that in turn affected my mental health. Mm -hmm. So my family are also very supportive now when it comes to therapy. I've started therapy this time around because I realised how much I needed it. 
but I realized that they understand what I'm they try to understand what I'm going through there's not a taboo when it comes to therapy or it it's not like I can't talk about how I feel my sister encourages me to talk about how I feel but I don't want to put that burden on anyone Mm -hmm. so it's nice to have that space where I'm actually allowed to communicate how I feel Mm -hmm. rather than just brush it under the carpet because people do ask you how you feel like friends family the wider family but they don't want you to tell you that you're upset. They want you to be like, oh, I'm fine. Yeah. And I'm not always fine. Because they don't want to have that emotional burden. If someone says, oh, how are you? And you actually, you know what? I'm having a bit of a crap day. Then the other person's like, crap. What, <laughs> like, how do I respond to it? Yeah. So it's I'm uncomfortable good. for them. For them yeah, yeah. So they just want to hear that, oh, like, you're good. Like, I'm okay. But there's a lot more to it. And, and you know, I think one thing about going through chemotherapy, and, and this is what I've seen as a doctor, because yeah. I worked in, in, the, in the oncology ward for yeah. four months. And I've seen that, you go through phases, you go through times where you're like, actually, things will be okay. Mm. And you're quite optimistic when the doctor mm. comes in and says, okay, your chemo was successful. Your side effects haven't been as bad as we thought they would. Yeah. And you're like, great. Okay. I, I can do this. I've got mm. this. But then in the next chemo, that's it. It could, it could just completely plummet it's the other way. Very up and down. Yeah. yeah. That's very true because there'll be times where I go to the hospital going through chemo or well, recently as well. I'll just be like so down like my mood would be like so depressed and I won't want to talk to anyone I'd be like crying because I don't want to be in this place but other times it's just normal for me mm-hmm. it's just become my life yeah yeah but it really does change and sometimes I just don't want to talk to anyone I don't want to talk to the nurses but that's the thing my moods are very up and down mm-hmm. and it's about managing them yeah yeah but it is very tricky. And have you been able to identify that a bit better now? Like how you're feeling um, as opposed to the beginning when probably you just didn't know how to deal with um, how you were feeling. Is it easier for you now, for you to think, okay, I'm having I'm not having a great day today and this is what okay. I'm going to do yeah. to, to actually make myself feel better? Um, so last time it was easier, I'd say, because I, I, I identified a pattern. Mm. It was more straightforward. This time it's different. There's... Like I said, it's the second time, but there's still so many unknowns that I'm not used to. Yeah. There's so many more pains. There's so many side effects. Mm. So it's harder. And that's why I was like, I need therapy. But I needed therapy when I was in remission because yeah. that was the hardest part. Like I'm scared about when I'm in full remission mm. because it feels like all this time you're wrapped up in cotton wool yeah. by your family and everyone. You're yeah. so delicate. Um, nothing can like touch you but then suddenly when you're in remission you're back into the normal world Mm. and you don't know how to deal with it because you're still processing the emotions that you haven't dealt with because you're just constantly on the go I'm constantly on the go well you know uh, one of my patients actually gave me a very good analogy and she said that dealing with first from the diagnosis to the end point which is remission and the treatment in between Mm. it's like you've been running away from a grizzly bear for like 50 miles and you're running 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 and you're just trying to fight it and fight it and fight it and you're sweating and mm. you're you're full of mud and then you you get to you, you think you're at the end yeah and there's a massive hill you have to climb to get away from this so you there. just don't expect yeah and then you have to you run that and you sprint and you're sweating and you're still mm. full of mud and you haven't eaten and you you feel sick then you get to the top and you feel like shit like you feel like terrible because you've been through so much but then People from the outside don't know what you've done. They think you're completely fine. And everyone's like, oh, great, you're a survivor. Yeah, yeah. Well done. But then inside you're like, okay, I survived it, but I feel terrible. Mm. Like, you know, I feel drained. I feel mm. tired. And I think that stuck with me. And mm. I think 
after after she told me that, I have a very different approach to my my patients or, or anyone I've seen going. When the checkups and stuff, even even like not just not just even uh, oncology patients, but even yeah. patients going through chronic diseases mm-hmm. like rheumatoid arthritis or anything like that, because those are things that stick with you lifelong, and they change you as a person yes. completely. Yeah, I found that I was just very anxious, and it made it harder that people didn't understand. I remember when I was first in remission when treatment finished Mm. everyone was so happy and I didn't understand I was so numb to it I just didn't know how to act and it's just that transition period which is very hard Mm -hmm. and then you have to go back to your normal life and then it's just not easy it's not easy as people think it is yeah it's not as fun and exciting Mm. it makes things a lot harder because I've changed completely and I'm still changing so much because it's not it's not like something that you can just put a full stop and Mm. move on you know you've been through a lot the last couple of years and it may take years to process and to actually like that's what they say yeah Yeah, so some people are able to grieve over it Mm. but sometimes it does catch up on you years and years down the line. Yeah. And Ravine, you know, just going back to what you were saying about how you don't feel like you should, you don't like to be emotional in front of your mom because mm. that makes her emotional, mm. right? And as kids, we rely on our parents to make us feel better. Mm-hmm. And we always, know, we always know mom and dad are going to be at home uh, if we need anything. And I think I've hit that stage now as as an adult. I, I recently got married as well. So I think a lot, yeah. a lot has changed in terms of, my role as a daughter mm. in the family, I think. And I feel now that if I'm upset, I don't need to talk to my... I shouldn't tell my mom because I don't want to... Her, her to worry. I don't want her to worry yeah. get her upset. So I think, like, roles have reversed now. Do you feel a sort of sense of responsibility to protect your parents emotionally from what you're going through now? Mainly because of our South Asian uh, culture and community. Yeah. Because uh, we feel like we have to take care of our elders and all of that. And I, I just wonder if that also puts a bit of a burden on you. Yes, um, I definitely say that is the case because I remember last year my mum did say that because I was okay in front of her, she was okay. Mm. And I'm a very emotional person, but I'd rather deal, deal with it on my own because that worries other people. But I don't know if it's specific to South Asian, the South Asian community or if it's just mm. the way that I am. Yeah, But I know my mum's just also very emotional she's also very protective mm. I'm the baby of the family yeah so I feel like if I can deal with it on my own like it's easier and yeah. I don't really talk about how I feel with my mum mm. um but yeah I don't know it's a bit of a hard one I think it's it's a combination of how I am and just like protecting yeah. my family yeah. like yeah. even though I'm going through it yeah they need protection too yeah I'm sorry <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. I never do this. Oh, sorry, Ruby. I didn't mean to. It's making me quite emotional. Well. Like, even yesterday, I was telling my husband how much I miss my parents, and now I'm just like, oh god, I really want to go back home now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really sorry, Ruby. No, um, don't but, be sorry. Um, I'm glad you're bringing out your emotions, and hopefully, this maybe makes you feel a bit better. Yeah, uh, because you're bringing it all out. So yeah, you don't need to go to therapy. I haven't cried in ages. Yeah, this is my therapy. This has just come to me. Um, I haven't even cried in therapy yet. Do you know that? <laughs> And I've been open about every aspect so far. Wow. I feel the same way too, Ravine. I I feel I feel like a sense of responsibility for my parents. Mm. I feel like I need to protect them. Even when we go to India, go to meet family, and I feel like someone's not being nice to my mom. I will like come in the middle. I always get I always get I always get in trouble over doing that because I get I get told I've got a big mouth, but I mean I I know what my parents have been through. And I think I think it's the same, maybe it's the same with you. Mm. Um our parents' generation 
has been a generation of the struggle um and silence for the women and silence yeah and and i we might be going a bit off topic but uh that's fine it's fine <laughs> <laughs> um so now that i'm, I'm a married woman right mm-hmm. now and i'm thinking about having my own family and, mm-hmm. and all that and now you know i think about the processes okay if if i do have a, a child in the future and i go through like the morning sickness or the labor or the pain and like I don't want to call my mom and tell her I'm in this sort of agony because she's going to be too far away from me. Mm. Or even things like if I have like uh, an argument or or a, b- a bad day with my husband, whatever, yeah. I, I don't want to tell her this because yeah. I know it'll get her upset. Yeah. And I remember when my mom came to to Europe with my 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 dad when they got married, she did tell me that when she had my brother, so my brother's older than me, in her first pregnancy, she struggled a lot. Mm. Um, I think. I think she had hyperemesis. Yeah. But she probably didn't know the term back then. Yeah, like they she did. Yeah, they it was... <laughs> now it's just more. Yeah, so she probably just thought she was just unwell. Yeah. And she did say, like, you know, she never told her mom about it because she didn't want her mother oh. to worry. And I, when when my mom told me that at the age of, like, 17, 18, I was like, I'm never going to do that. Yeah. But now I'm like, actually, I understand why she did that. Like, why would you want to put your mom through that sort of worry and, and make them upset in that way? So I think... I think it's it's important that we protect our parents where we can. But we also, also find comfort in our yeah, parents. But we also like, have to your mother's the comfort. Yeah, but we also have to remember that they're for us, right? Yeah. Like that's that's all they want to do, Ruby. You know, they all they want to do is protect us. They want to make sure that we're happy. And I think we have to allow them to do that, you know, Definitely. When, when we can. But um, I also think it's because for me, like for instance, my mum's moved her from India. It's a completely different life that she's had to adapt to. So it's just always I feel like for our generation, we've always kind of protected like my mother in particular. So just like helping her with like the language or like taking calls or like sending emails. It's always been... Teaching them how to use WhatsApp. (laughs) Exactly. It's always kind of like teaching them and taking a parental role on to an extent. So I think that's where we feel like we are liable. Like we need to keep it together for our parents because we've taken we've become the teacher in some instances and we're also learning so much we know the importance of speaking out and not being silent not taking crap yeah but I think there does come a point where you need to draw the line and be like I need my mother I need my father and it's okay to be vulnerable because that's what they're for yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't not want to know yeah and that's when it grows your relationship better as well I think that connects you on a much deeper level 100% and that helps you sort of develop your own relationship because even in a few years time when you look back maybe you don't you don't want to regret not having that support when you could have had it yeah and I think for example even with with my, my mom and I when I studied medicine for six years I was quite distant from them only because I didn't want them to feel upset that I was going through the stresses of medical school mm. or whatever. And now now I tell my mom everything. We're like best friends. Yeah. And it's connected us so much more. And I think a lot of girls are going through what we're going through actually, whether married or not married, where we try to protect them. But I think we just need to remember that that's what they're there for as well. You know, they're there to help us and, and protect us. And we we may feel like that we may feel that we have a burden that we have to be the positive one and have to be like, uh, you know, the strong woman of the family. Mm. But um, it's not always the case, Ravine. I think it's okay not it's okay to be. Not to be yeah. I think it's worse for our parents if we don't confide in them. Yeah, they feel like they're not doing their job. Yeah. Or like, I think my sister also plays like a motherly role with me, yeah. and she gets upset when I don't tell her how mm. I feel. But 
it's just about protecting their feelings because we know our mothers are going to overthink and get very emotional and it won't like they'll always bring it up and they won't be able to think about anything else but But you know we're we're sitting here and we're talking about um we're talking about a lot of different things i know (laughs) (laughs) this is what i told you (laughs) the blessing that we have living in this country and living in in the society that we're living in Mm. is that we have you have been able to get your private treatment Mm -hmm. go through your therapy and even acknowledge the fact that you you need help from external sources Mm -hmm. my uh, my grandmother um, was diagnosed with leukemia about four years ago, um, and then she was given the all clear, and then uh, came back again. Mm. Now, with her, the mentality that my family had was because she was a grandmother; everyone loves loves her. She loves everyone. Yeah, the mentality was like, we just need to keep her alive. Yeah, right. No one really asked her like, she, what do you want at this age? What do you want? What will make you most comfortable? what will make you feel better, what will make you feel happy. Because mm. she went through a lot of chemo, she went through a lot of treatments, she went through a lot of blood transfusions, platelet trans- and you're just thinking, okay, at the age of whatever, age 70 plus, 80 plus, do you want to spend your time in hospital just getting mm. transfusions and chemotherapy and all that? Now, I think at that point, they didn't actually think my family, and I don't blame them, I don't mm. blame them at all. Uh, it's because they haven't uh, been educated or they haven't been exposed to what we have um, as a generation. Mm-hmm. But their priority was we need to keep her alive. And they were thinking about themselves, actually. They were like, we want a mother to stay alive. Yeah. We want a mother to be here with us. I've had loads of conversations about this. And there wasn't a case of actually, but how does grandma feel? Yeah, how what does she, she want? Yeah. What does she want? And no one ever asked her that. Is she having a good quality of life? Yeah. Is she enjoying it? And and is she having the comfort she needs? And unfortunately, um, a few years ago, she, she she passed away. And she passed away in a very uncomfortable way, actually. And mm. It's not the, it's, you don't want to see your mother like that at the end of, of yeah. her life, really. Um, and, you know, when I when I worked in the oncology department, that was one thing we, we put a lot of focus on. Mm-hmm. What does a patient want? Yeah. Of course, your mother wants the best for you. Your father wants the best for you. Your sister does as well. Mm-hmm. As a young girl, what would you like to happen if, mm. if scenario A happens or scenario B happens? And have you had that sort of space where you've been able to say, actually, this is what I want? And this is how I want things to be if this happens or if this happens. Have you had these kind of conversations? No, I haven't. I think although my family acknowledge that I've got cancer and they're fine, as in it's not like a taboo, we do, we are able to speak about it. I'm allowed to cry about it. I'm allowed to go to therapy. But I think one of the main reasons I went to therapy this time was because I think now that it's come back, I naturally have that fear of death. Right. And that's something I can't actively speak about yeah. with my family because yeah. that, again, that worries them. Yeah. I don't want that to then go in their head if they haven't been mm-hmm. thinking about it much. But the natural association with cancer is death. I think that's how people mm-hmm. view it, which yeah. also makes it a bit of a taboo subject. Yeah. I think death is very taboo. Um, and I think the fear of death, especially at my age, is becoming very prominent over time. And I'm trying to understand how to deal with it, mm-hmm. the best way to deal with it. But I've also been seeing it in a very different light because I know when I was younger, I didn't really appreciate life as much. I didn't understand the reason of life. I would always be very down. But now I'm like, I feel like I'm fighting to live. I really understand and appreciate the beauty of life, which is nice, but that doesn't take away the fear that I have. And it is very hard to talk about it or talk about what if that does happen. I think with my family, it's more like everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. We just need to get through it. We need to get through it. But 
I'm going to go through one of the biggest transitions like next month. It's going to be a serious risk. Like if you have an infection from a stem cell transplant, you can die. People die. Like that's the reality of it. But it is hard to communicate with people because I don't want to put that in their heads. Yeah. I don't want to plant that is there seed. Anybody you can talk to this about? My therapist. <laughs> That's what I got. Um, I can speak to people about it, but I don't want to scare them. Yeah. And I don't know what they're thinking. They're probably thinking something similar, mm. but they don't want to worry me in turn. So it's kind of, yeah. it's not talking about it yeah. really. Yeah, and I know it's a very very sensitive topic to bring up, but I just think that no one no one thinks about the end at our age no one ever does death happens when you're older yeah it's only something you think about even and and to be honest Ravine my parents they're in their uh, early 60s even they're like yeah we've got like plenty of time I think it's something that we should all be aware of whether we Mm. are a cancer patient because anything can happen to anyone anything even with terminal cancer patients they're always given an end goal like you aren't going to survive but that can happen to any of us. Anything can happen. There's so much happens. Like you can be run over by a bus yeah. or whatever. And it, it can happen to your life can change anytime at any any part of the day, any part of your life actually. And as I think as a doctor, I probably appreciate that a bit more mm. because I see it. You see it day to day. And you know, there are times where we have uh, very young people coming in with very simple things like a headache mm. or a chest infection. And we we scan them, we investigate, and then we find something that's quite quite dangerous like you know, malignancy and then you have to go through these conversations they're like we've never thought about it and I've never thought about it my husband's never thought about it I think it's different so when you when you've got terminal cancer when you've got a really serious illness they'll tell you you don't have long to live or you cannot be cured and there's a difference between being told that and consciously thinking about it We're, we don't think about it I wouldn't have thought about it before this year really yeah I haven't thought about death but now I now realize the importance of thinking about Mm -hmm. it and coming to terms with it coming to terms with something and having to it takes a lot of effort takes a lot of energy mental energy and and you know you, you have to put yourself in a good mind frame to actually make specific decisions and think about these things mm. there must be times where you're just like I'm, I'm tired I, I want to give up yeah and there, there must be times and uh I, I do appreciate it because I've, I've seen it myself and what do you do in those times where you feel like, man, this is too much for me. I, I'm, I'm tired now because it's not just the, the cancer itself and, you know, the impact it's had on your family. As I mentioned very much earlier on, it's the, the, the physical yeah. aspects of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Don't. <laughs> no, one, no one needs to know. <laughs> um, what do you do at that point? Like at that, when you hit those points, what do you do? See, I don't know what to do at this point. I don't, I haven't figured a way. So the last month I have hit those points more often than not. So just going through the chemo, I'd be like, I give up. Or um, I was able to just like be emotional the day after chemo last time. And then my sister heard about it and she was like, why do you want to give up? Um, And it's about talking about it, but. At the end of the day, no one understands what I feel or what I'm going through. And <laughs> um, I don't understand how other people feel, like my sisters. Like, I'm very positive about it. There's so many success stories that we just don't hear about. We hear about people that die. Yeah. 
my therapist said the same. And it's easy to focus on that sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I just don't hear about many success stories. I hear about the bad stories and I exaggerate them. Yeah. And I think I'm trying to understand how other people are feeling, but I also think they are trying to stay positive for yeah. the sake of it. Yeah. But I know just so much happens. There's so many unexpected points in my life that I now, I'm now coming to terms with. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I should be open to that because anything can happen. Yeah. How many therapy sessions have you had? Have you had a lot? No, it's quite brand new. So it's like a few. Just a few. Yeah. Because, you know, that's the thing, Ravina, as I was saying, we live in a society and in a country, actually, where we have these facilities. Mm. But, you know, I was thinking this morning, cancer is something that we find worldwide. Mm -hmm. It's not just something we find in countries that can fight it, whatever. I mean, if you just think about it, imagine someone having to go through this at your age in a less developed country. Mm-hmm. Even just thinking, talking about the word depression would just be like, oh my God, why are you saying that? Mm. Like, you can't talk about these things because it's mm. a taboo. So I think I think as much as like I berate the NHS, yeah. <laughs> I also think we have, like you've got the Macmillan support team. Yeah. You know, the, you have like, there's different a lot of different teams of people working on different aspects of your therapy mm-hmm. and your diagnosis to make you feel feel better, mm-hmm. because uh, you know even when someone uh, is diagnosed with with a disease or with anything, it isn't just treating that. Um, there's so much more behind that, so many angles to that. And when I worked in in the oncology ward, um, I remember I spent a lot of time actually. Like if you look at if you look at my notes, like just two percent is actually about the medical side. Yeah, the rest is actually what the patient feels. That's amazing. What, what the patient, what the patient actually wants, because mm-hmm. a lot of times there's a big disparity with what the patient wants and what the mother wants. Yeah, the father wants, mm-hmm. and then you, as a doctor, you have to try balance that because your priority is the patient, the patient happy. Yeah. Um, and I remember there was a a lady who had uh, terminal breast cancer, and she was about thirty seven, I think, mm-hmm. and it was it was end stage, and she knew that like things weren't going very well she had three young kids her husband and the rest of her family and they kept fighting and fighting and fighting they had lo- they even like threatened to take us to the newspapers and everything because as doctors you have to be able to say we can't do much more you know mm, this, is, this yeah. is the final straw and they kept pushing for chemo 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 didn't they like fine mm. and and the poor lady really like i still remember i don't think i'll ever forget her um, she would just lie on her bed, just feeling nauseous and vomiting. The feeling of chemotherapy yeah. is so like I don't think anyone understands yeah. the strain on your body. It's poison to the body. Yeah, and, and no no one will understand. The unless side effects are so crazy. Yeah, but then what you were talking about the NHS and the focus on the patient. So I then went back to my local hospital and they wanted help with redesigning the wards, and so I was in a meeting with quite a few people. And it was really interesting because I understood how much support there was beyond once people were in remission. So loads of charities would come together and help life beyond cancer. Mm. Um, And that's something I wasn't exposed to being in the private, being under private care. Yeah. And that's when I learned about it. I was like, wow, like, that's amazing. I never even had that as an option. Yeah. Yeah. But then... I don't know. I think that's where the NHS is also good because there is focus. They come, yeah, yeah they join forces with like Click Sergeant, yeah. Macmillan, and 
they encourage their patients to go to these events, like make up feel good events. Yeah, and yeah. they work in so many different aspects that I wasn't exposed to. And I've, I've actually worked with a lot of these people. And I honestly think, Ravine, they work much harder than the doctors themselves. Mm. They, they're much more hardworking, much more passionate yes. and empathetic. I'm always patients. amazed by why they want to be in that position yeah, yeah. or why they say that passionate and it's amazing and I've seen these people work on the wards and in, in the hospital in the clinics and they work eight hours straight they won't stop for lunch because like, we have to see the next patient we have to see the next yeah. patient because these patients are waiting for them yeah and as I was saying as much as I like say the NHS is, is a difficult system it does provide it does provide a good a good network and a yeah. good support system they do do the most yeah but obviously there's going to be pros and cons with everything but when you look at the NHS and you look at like say America like we are very fortunate okay yeah definitely I, I definitely agree with that we don't have the stress of thinking about medical bills this no, that the no. other and I think that NHS is it's different from your point of view mm. and everyone's gonna have bad experiences I've had bad experiences but at the end of the day we are very lucky without the NHS I don't know what will happen mm-hmm. and obviously the, it's very like uncertain. My, my, only, my the only chip that I have on my shoulder with NHS is that I feel like I I want to do more for the patient, but I can't mm-hmm. because I can't speed up Cross, the system. Yeah, I can't call the next because a lot of in I work in emergency medicine, so a lot of our um, plans for the patients are referrals, mm. like refer to this team or to refer to that team. Now I can refer them, but I can't force the the next doctor to see the patient. I can't do that. Mm. And that's what like frustrates me because every referral has a certain uh, amount of time they have to wait. Yeah. Like again, protocol mm-hmm. and I'm stuck and I can't do anything. Yeah. And that's what annoys me. But again, I am very grateful for what we have because it's, it's a system that allows us to, to not worry about, but imagine having to go through what you had to go through plus Thinking waiting about time, waiting times, medical bill. It would be, it would be mm. very difficult. Um, so, Ravine, one, one last thing I wanted to talk to you about was you you mentioned um, freezing your eggs. Mm-hmm. And that's a topic that, I mean, like, even with my mom, even as a married woman, Ravine, if I t- talk to my mom about, about even having kids, <laughs> she's like, oh, be sure I'm like, what are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, mom, I'm married. Well, even now? <laughs> oh, my God. So, um Oh, God. When I first had my consultation, my dad was like, I don't need to be in the room. <laughs> and I was like, OK. Yeah. But like second time round, he's like all for it. He's like, OK, I'll come to the thingy. But yeah. I don't understand why it's such a taboo. Yeah. Was that something you expected to have to talk about or have to think about? No. So I've got a very close family. I love my nieces and nephews. Always been like the like maternal kind of patient kind of person. But I never thought in my life that, at 23, I'd have to decide whether or not I wanted kids. I, that I did never struck my mind because I think for a lot of women, we think, yeah, it's a given to have kids. But then at that time in my life, I realised it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. To conceive is not easy. Whether or not you have a medical problem, it's yeah. not easy. And I grew up with a lot of my friends, obviously being Asian, having polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that obviously decreases your chance of conceiving. Yep. And when I used to hear about it, I used to be like, wow, like, that means you can't have kids. But it's actually very common, whether or not you have polycystic ovary syndrome, a medical issue, it's naturally hard to have kids. But that's when I realised there's not much of a dialogue about having kids growing up. It's just you're bound to have kids, especially in our community. Mm. If you don't have kids, it's, a good it's, one, yeah. it's crazy if you don't yeah. have kids. You know, actually, I was talking to my husband uh, the other day and we were just thinking like, when 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 you're married, right? 
So if you have like kids immediately, people will be like, oh, so soon, so soon. Is that why you got married? <laughs> and then like, if you have it like three years down the line, they're like, oh, it took so long yeah. for you to have kids. So there's like, they're never happy with, yeah. like our community is always just on our kids. There's a timeline. There's, yeah, there's always, always a timeline. timeline. And you need to tick all the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. You need to go to uni. You need to finish your studies, find your partner at uni, tick that off, yeah. get married, tick that off and then have kids take that off if you haven't done that you haven't completed it you're still going to be questioned (laughs) you haven't completed the life cycle (laughs) exactly yeah and I think with our community especially the elder generation they're quite insensitive when it comes to conceiving they don't understand that person may have a miscarriage they may have trouble um so I think it's a very sensitive and personal topic and it puts especially females as because we bear the brunt of it all it puts us in an awkward position and it makes it hard so I think there needs to be a lot more sensitivity to the topic of having kids Mm. and which I don't think is discussed enough so when when this came about um what was your reaction I mean how did you discuss it with your parents or did did you even or do you just go through so it was very hard because my I had a my doctor put me through referred me sat down with a fertility consultant it was me, my mum, my sister, because my dad wasn't present, yeah. didn't choose to be present. And it just felt like so much information at once. And I had never thought about mm. it before. And I was very overwhelmed. I was breaking down during the, um, the meeting. I didn't understand. I couldn't take in information. It just felt very overwhelming, very taxing for me. But after that, my sister was able to rationalise it with me. We had pros and cons. And I decided not to go forward with it. Okay. Um, People are very surprised by that. But the treatment I was having at that time didn't have a big effect on my fertility. It wasn't as intense. Um, So I made up the decision that if I was to relapse like I have, then I will definitely freeze my eggs because Mm -hmm. that's important to me. But I had to trust myself, trust my decision at that time in my life. And because I wasn't thinking about kids, I'm not at that stage of my life. It was also very hard to put myself. But I mean, there. if this if this question came to you like five years down the line, I'm sure your answer would have been totally different. Yeah. So it's it's a it's like is that what I say about having to decide what degree to study at the age of 18? I think that's ridiculous. Yes, that's like, gonna, yeah, that's <laughs> like you know you're not you a good... at that age, and I think it's a very very sensitive and difficult age to ask that because as women we all want cute babies we all mm. want to have kids and it's something that we we fantasize about like it's also have... very romanticized yeah it is it is about having a child that's a combination of you and your husband i see it so much on like social media and i've also learned to realize that there's a lot more than that yeah and this time round i froze my eggs and that's not even definite that i'll be able to have children mm. But I've done that as a backup and I'm happy with that. But I'm also, I've now had to understand there are other options. There's adopting, which I think is a beautiful thing. And I now know that you can have a child that is very much like you. It doesn't have to be in the appearance, but in terms of mannerisms Mm -hmm. and how you bring them up. And there's a thing in our community about our blood and our genes going into the next line, right? Um, I think adoption is something I've considered myself as well because I like I personally feel like it's selfish for us to keep creating when there's so many kids. When you can make an existing life better rather than create a new one. That's how I have come to see it. Yeah. And it's not very common in our community to adopt. But I'm now looking at things in a very different perspective and I respect that. And I think even now I'm like, if I wanted to have kids. 
I would be happy with adopting and not even having my own. Like, I think it's a very beautiful, yeah, beautiful thing to explore. Yeah. And but it's something that's never spoken about in, yeah. in our communities. As you mentioned, um, we're just expected to conceive and have a really nice nine months, have a pregnancy and have our baby. And that's it. Life's not as but perfect no, as that. It's, it's not, not as an ideal. And that's OK as well. It isn't. And we as young women as well, especially women who are listening to this podcast, young girls, mm-hmm. I think it's important to just hammer the fact that you don't have to have your own kids. You don't or have kids to, at all. Yeah, you don't have just because you have that pressure from society. You know, one thing that I realized when I was getting married, Ramin, was that so one of the main discussions before marriage for us was so my husband's a Gujarati and I'm mm-hmm. a Punjabi. Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, and he's Brahmin and I'm not Brahmin. So there was like, yeah, but we want the, our Brahmin like bloodline to continue. Yeah. We live in a generation where that doesn't matter anymore. Like, even if our, even if the child was com- like pure Brahmin, pure Gujarati, you could just end up like doing something completely different. That's not Gujarati and not mm. Brahmin. Like, you know, you, could, you don't have control over these no, things. Don't. And I think we we have to sort of let go of the idea that our bloodline needs to continue, our g- genetics need to go down the line because that's not what raising a child is about. Yeah, and, there's a lot more and to it. Having a family isn't just about that. There's so much more to it, as you said, like, you know, your own mannerisms and how you raise a child. Yeah, which is the most important. Yeah. And how you, I think, what they liked back in the day, well, in our parents' generation, was communicating. Mm. So I found it, I think one of the biggest problems, which is because of society, because of our community, was how will my husband approach this, my future? I haven't met my partner yet, but when I do, when do I bring this up? But yeah. I may not be able to conceive. And will this be a problem for him and then his family as well? Because we have yeah. to take into account our husband's family, like our own. So I think there's so many pressures and it's like, maybe that person doesn't want to have a kid and that's okay yeah. as well. Yeah. But I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> it's okay. We spoke say. about a lot. Right? So we've been yeah. going back and forward. Freezing eggs mm. is probably something a lot of women, maybe in the UK, are, are very aware of. Um, but especially in India, um, it's probably something that's quite alien to them. They don't know mm. what it is and, and what it means. So it's really important that you bring this discussion up, Ravina. Mm. I think you're doing such a, a great job and you've inspired me so much personally. Like after watching you uh, work with Rahul a few mm-hmm. weeks ago and, you know, you even making it to the studio today from the other side of London. <laughs> like, um, I understand how, how difficult it must be to to find, even sometimes find the energy to just mm. keep going. But, you know, you've, you've definitely inspired me. Mm-hmm. And I think you've already done a great job by doing that. And I'm sure there's so many other women who, you've, who you're going to continue to inspire in the next few months, Ravine. And um, really just well done for everything that you're doing. Um, if there is anyone listening to this podcast today mm-hmm. and maybe they're going through something similar uh maybe they're going through a difficult time what would you what would you say to them it's okay to seek help seek therapy and I think what I learned is just to trust the process I've had a really tough three years like the worst three years of my life but I trust in God I understand that things are going to only like make me stronger. I'm becoming more resilient by the day and I'm not letting little things get to me, but I know that the future is going to be better and I'm fighting to live and I'm really excited. So I think finding reasons to live is the most important and just appreciating existence. So when I have new nieces and nephews, I'm like, wow, you existing is such a beautiful thing. Just being here, experiencing new 
things, laughing, loving life. I think love's literally the most important. So prioritise that Mm. because there is a lot more than your job and what you have to offer, but just be a good person and laugh, really. I think one thing that I've taken away from this podcast myself is there's a lot of things in our life that we don't appreciate enough. Mm -hmm. The small things, even us having a cup of tea together. I think this conversation in itself is such a blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, as you said, that there's so much to life that we forget because we're stuck in this rut. We're stuck in the system. We have to get a degree. We have to get married. We have to, you know, and we just need a moment sometimes to to pause and Mm -hmm. just reflect. I think this conversation today hopefully will change a lot of women and even men who are listening mm-hmm. to this and change their their mentality and obviously maybe even help them going through a tough time that go, they're going through right now so thank you so much for joining thank us you today. for having me thank you it's such a lovely time thank you thank you dear listeners for tuning in uh, to this very first episode of me Knowles world and uh, thank you ravine for spending time with me on that rainy cold day in london i still remember walking you back to the train station and uh we were both freezing our butts off so thank you to, to everybody who tuned in today and i'd love to know what your biggest take-home message from this episode was my my biggest take-home message which is what I said in the introduction was about having these timelines that we feel we need to follow in our life and as I as I said as I keep listening to this episode I find new things that I learn about and this is what this podcast is about I want to talk to you listeners about topics that you feel need discussing things that we don't usually talk about at home and we can talk about on this podcast and you can message me on facebook or instagram uh, you can find me at meanles world you can also email me and my email address is meanlesworldpodcast at gmail.com Uh, So Ravine has so much more incredible work coming out over the next few months and you can follow her own journey at Ravine K. Seti, which I'll put in the show notes as well. Uh, Remember, Amina's World will bring you an episode every single Friday. We'll have guests on the show. We'll have uh, topics that you want to hear if you send me anything you'd like to talk about. Uh, So please do subscribe and share with your friends because I'm sure the stories that we have on this show not only helping me go through my own journey but I'm sure it can help so many other people so please do share this with with everybody you can and thank you for tuning in and I'm really excited to bring the next episode out to you next Friday so until next week I'm Meenal and this is the Meenal's World Podcast